You may remember the image of Edgar Allan Poe's raven haunting the poem's narrator, refusing to leave him in peace. Well, it turns out that raven might still be with us. Uh, Nathan, if you're trying to scare us, I'll remind you that uh, we've already done our Halloween show. No, Brian, you can actually go see The Raven today in Philadelphia, and I promise it's as real as a cheesesteak or the Liberty Bell. As real, but maybe a bit creepier. And that's why I will go see this raven nevermore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me take a wild guess. I'm guessing that it's a taxidermied raven, Nathan. It absolutely is. What makes it pose raven? There are a lot of ravens out there. If it's just some dead bird replica, I'm going to lose interest pretty quickly. That's a fair question. And being from Baltimore, I have to be sensitive to it as well. But I can assure you that this is not just some dead bird. Before inspiring Poe, it was actually another celebrated author's pet. Dickens was quite interested in ravens, and actually during his lifetime, he had at least three live ravens. Grip was the first one, and Grip served as a character in his mystery novel, Barnaby Rudge. That's Robert McCracken Peck from the Academy of Natural Sciences at Drexel University, joining us again. And he helped bring Grip back to life. In 1991, the bird had some signs of domestic beetle damage. This is a very common insect pest that will get into a mounted specimen and eat away at the base of a feather, for example, in a bird. Fortunately, the people who had mounted grip originally, the taxidermist who worked for Charles Dickens to do this work, had applied a lot of arsenic. And this was common in the 19th century. And so the domestic beetles, as soon as they hit the arsenic, they died. Nevertheless, there were some skins of the insects around the base of the bird, and I think the library was quite right in having us double-check its health and safety. Let me get this right. The raven that's now in Philadelphia was once Charles Dickens' pet raven? It was. And apparently, the fact that Dickens loved his raven grip so much motivated him to taxidermy his raven after he died. Listen to how Dickens describes his attachment to his pet raven in the preface of Barnaby Rudge. It may have been that he was too bright a genius to live long, or it may have been that he took some pernicious substance into his bill and thence into his maw, which is not improbable, seeing that he tore up and swallowed, in splinters, the greater part of a wooden staircase of six steps and a landing. But after some three years he too was taken ill, and died before the kitchen fire. He kept his eye to the last upon the meat as it roasted, and suddenly turned over on his back with a sepulchral cry of, Cuckoo! Since then, I have been ravenless. And in Barnaby Rudge, Dickens revives Grip by turning him into a character in the novel and making him Barnaby's mischievous companion. Well, it's it's a funny thing. In fact, he is um, the sort of the figure with whom we are left at the very end of the novel. We have the sort of penultimate paragraph of the whole book um, describing how the bird advanced with fantastic steps to the very door of the bar and there cried, I'm a devil, I'm a devil, I'm a devil, with extraordinary rapture. And then in the very last paragraph, and indeed the last line of the last paragraph, uh, we're told that Quote, from that period, he constantly practiced and improved himself in the vulgar tongue. And as he was a mere infant for a raven when Barnaby was gray, he has very probably gone on talking to the present time. That's Matthew Redmond. 
He's a doctoral student in English at Stanford University, and he recently wrote an article about Dickens, Poe, and the Raven. I think it's a, quite an interesting thing in that Dickens appears to be doing on a literary level with this final paragraph what he also then does in his own life. He's sort of preserving the, the raven in a permanent state that will enable him to survive decades into the future. It's the sense that Dickens wants this raven preserved. Uh, he has him stuffed, of course, and uh, the raven's this presence of this, indeed the figure of the raven sort of broods over him in his study in, in its taxidermied state while he writes. And I think Dickens perhaps looks upon Grip as a kind of uh, representative, a figure for himself. So it was the works he created and could carefully control from his books to his bird that he associated most closely with himself and how he wanted to be remembered. Indeed, he was so conscious of his own image all through his life and with sort of distilling his character into this sort of ideal form. And I think he sees his works as sort of um, maintaining that form and sort of preserving it perhaps almost in a taxidermied state into the future. And that uh, this is, becomes a great focus of his life, you know, sort of curating his works in, in just the right way and preparing them for that afterlife that he intends for them. Okay, I understand why this raven meant so much to Charles Dickens now. But I don't understand where Poe fits into all of this. Uh-huh. See, Poe was intrigued and influenced by the character Grip in Barnaby Rudge. But ultimately, as he wrote in a review at the time, he found Grip wanting. The raven, too, intensely amusing as it is, might have been made, more than we now see it, a portion of the conception of the fantastic Barnaby. Its croakings might have been prophetically heard in the course of the drama. Its character might have performed, in regard to that of the idiot, much the same part as does, in music, the accompaniment in respect to the air. Each might have been distinct. Each might have differed remarkably from the other. Yet between them, there might have been wrought an analogical resemblance, and although each might have existed apart, they might have formed together a whole which would have been imperfect in the absence of either. For Poe, Dickens's carefully constructed, neatly put-together raven seemed to miss the mark, and so Poe becomes convinced that he can create a better raven and sets out to write his now famous poem. The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore. While I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, and nothing more." I think that the raven, in some ways, is a kind of allegory of poetic process, and that Poe is sort of taking Dickens' raven and writing a poem in which he sort of meditates on the very act of taking someone else's literary device and, and what it means to do that. And the speaker of that poem is sort of perhaps buried underneath all of the books and, and the vast volumes of, of forgotten lore in his study. I mean, Derrida famously observes that the poem begins among books and papers and letters and thus does not begin at all. And I think he would have been keenly aware of the ways in which uh, literature and, and taxidermy have a number of things in common, this desire to sort of reanimate the past and make it sort of present in, in some way and sort of bring about some kind of resurrection that in some ways is, is quite fearful and, and confusing, perhaps. Dickens loved his raven so much that he did all this work to keep him alive through his writing and by having him taxidermied. 
But most people know The Raven thanks to the poetic version Poe imagines from the other side of the Atlantic, never having even set his eyes on the real bird. But ultimately, whether it's through Dickens or Poe, whether it's in physical or literary form, The Raven seems determined to last, to persevere through time, to maintain its grip on us. And so, years later, long after they both had died, The Raven followed Poe, his deceased popularizer, home to Philadelphia, where he remains today. Grip is standing in a very sort of regal, raven-like pose and is mounted in a rustic shadow box that apparently Charles Dickens embellished himself with branches from his own estate. It gives it a, a very kind of a natural appearance, but the bird shows no signs of activity. His wings are not extended or anything. He's simply standing uh, the way he would have in life. I think Grip is in very stable condition right now. We opened up the shadow box that he was housed in and cleaned all of that out. The dust is removed, uh, any other particulate matter. The insects are all gone, uh, and it's all been carefully sealed up. The Free Library keeps it under wonderful conditions with temperature and humidity control, and we're fairly confident that given the arsenic load in the skin, it's unlikely to get any infestation of cigarette beetles or dermestid beetles anytime soon. The sort of feathery figure of this taxidermied raven still sort of expresses an essential tension in Poe's writing, this tension that's expressed with the question, who is controlling whom? On the one hand, we have these very ingenious and, and uh, meticulous efforts to preserve the raven. It seems that we are keeping him under glass and controlling it in a manner of speaking. And yet, ultimately, is not the raven sort of controlling us and compelling us to, to preserve him? And there's this kind of ambiguity that I think Poe would thoroughly enjoy, and uh, that I think he would be delighted by the whole thing, precisely you know, fascinated by the strangeness of, of it all and the circuitous quality and the way that it sort of beggars easy answers. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting, on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door, and his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor, and my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. Robert McCracken Peck is a senior fellow at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University and a curator of art and artifacts. He's also the author of the upcoming book, Specimens of Hair, the Curious Collection of Peter A. Brown. Matthew Redman is a doctoral student in English at Stanford University. His article, If Bird or Devil, was recently published in the Edgar Allan Poe Review. Nathan, Ed, I don't know if you saw the email just came in, but they've proposed stuffing the co-hosts the backstory. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm not up for it. We can laugh about this, but I got to admit that as we did this show, I recognized there are actually some 
pretty serious historical questions entailed in to stuff or not. Yeah, you know, and for me, who is a little bit squeamish about such things, the idea of stuffing animals was alarming on its surface, but there's also historical issues for us to think a little bit about. You know, when uh, Charlie and Keith Gibson at uh, VMI were talking about the horse, uh, and then when I was talking with Nicole Marantonio, um, you, you hear sort of different perspectives on what this might mean. You know, Colonel Gibson sees it as basically kind of an introduction to letting people think about the Civil War who might not otherwise. Nicole wonders if the whole idea of having an attractive horse there doesn't kind of domesticate uh, the Confederacy a little bit and obscure the issues over which the war was fought. So it's interesting that problems you would never think of as being associated with taxidermy uh, are there when you look a little bit closer. Well, I think, too, it's also about conjuring people's imagination. You know, if you imagine the 18th century cabinets of curiosities with all these objects taken from the New World or the World Columbian Exposition in the 1890s and these, you know, living exhibits with, you know, stuffed animals effectively. So much of this is meant to help people who can't maybe get to a place imagine what that place might be like on the other side of the world. And I I wonder even when we're talking about stuffing the founding fathers, (laughs) if some, some of that is about imagining what the founders would really think in the here and now if you could just look them in the eye and kind of pose a question, you know. And so it's it's different, obviously, in many respects from what we do as historians, but there's also an element there of trying to help people, you know, connect with something that they might not necessarily experience firsthand at a, at a past place or a distant place. Yeah, people seem very interested today in going to Madame Tussauds exactly. Wax Figure Museum. There's something mm-hmm. about somebody being there in three dimensions of human scale that makes them more approachable. I think the other thing, Brian, this reminds us is that in the 18th and 19th centuries, people were a lot closer to death and a lot less mm. squeamish about remains than we are today, where the goal seems to be to make it disappear as quickly as possible. Yeah. You know, there's a, a tendency toward cremation and not having sort of people displayed in their caskets nearly as much and so forth. But, you know, it was common in the 19th century for loved ones, children, uh, spouses to basically be put on display in the the home. And people preserve hair and things like that that seem to us inappropriate. It seems to me maybe the stuffing of animals is not unrelated to that, is that people think about the body uh, in a different way, whether it's humans or animals. So answer me this, Nathan. If Ed is right, and he makes a compelling case— why is taxidermy coming back? I understand they're hipster taxidermists, uh, that it's, it's cool among young people. Well, well, there are ways in which I think people are still looking to these old forms. Some hipsters want to make horseshoes or, or blacksmiths, right? I mean, there's, there's something about old-style craftsmanship of one kind or another. And so if you think about 19th century creativity, right, I mean, taxidermy and the making of barrels and craft beer, I mean, all this stuff is part of a it's certain— Real. Kind of, it's, yeah, real. It's, it's real. It's real. No, exactly. It's real. It's tangible. It's, more, it's not digital. Exactly. It's more, it's more authentic. But I think there's also a question here that, that gets raised even from the point that Ed had made about, you know, the deeply historical nature of our relationship to the real, right? And, and particularly now, thinking about like zoos, for instance, right? We, we take it as totally acceptable to have animals that are confined in spaces that we can then observe. And we imagine, we hope that they're being handled in a somewhat humane way, even if sometimes we know that they're not. And I wonder if, you know, 50 or 100 years from now, folks will look back on our generation and wonder about that zoo thing that we seem so committed to observing animals who are locked up in these different, you know, 
pens and cages and such. So you know, in, in a way, it's, it's very humbling to think that, you know, we have the luxury of looking at, you know, living animals in, in places now that, you know, formerly would just simply be these dioramas, effectively. And to just underscore your point, Nathan, those hipster taxidermists, at least some of them, uh, insist that no animals were harmed during the process. They actually stuff animals that either died by natural causes or died in one way or another. They didn't kill them in order to mount them uh, over their roaring fire. Yeah, I think there's a, a quest for honesty as well as authenticity in this. You know, uh, we eat animals in the forms of fillets and patties and, and that sort of thing, but don't think very much about the animal from which it came. You could argue that having to sort of look your dinner in the eye, <laughs> even if it's a glass eye, uh, is a good reminder of our connections to the world. 